Well, good morning and happy Father's Day. It's great to be with you all. It's fun for me to get to share the stage with David Filkin, who, as he mentioned, with his broader team, has led men's fraternity these last five years and has made a huge impact on hundreds of men. This fall, September 14th, Mike will start a new series in men's fraternity. I encourage you If you are a father, if you are a son, I don't know what else you could be as a guy, uh, (laughs) consider being there, 6 a.m. Friday mornings. It's also fun for me to share the stage with uh, Dan McKinney. Coach McKinney, or Mr. McKinney, was my soccer coach 28 years ago, and uh, fun now to be on his team, uh, quite literally, as we serve here at Christ Church. Naturally, with this being Father's Day, I spent some time reflecting on my own father and thinking about the memories that I have with him and the things that I most love. Some of those things are, you know, unique, kind of one-off experiences, grand things that you remember. Some of those things for me, I remember my dad and I bumping into uh, former President Ford while we were out walking to the ski slope one day, and... We talked with him for a little bit, and I, being 22 and now a grown-up, having earned this right, thought it perfectly appropriate to say, hey, nice to meet you, Jerry. Um, (laughs) Apparently, you don't do that. I've had a chance at a tennis tournament with my dad to be doubles partners with Billie Jean King. I've had a chance with my dad to watch the Bulls uh, win their fourth championship. We were there the night that Michael Jordan won that game, coming back from his own father's having been murdered, and fell on the floor with that trophy and just went right into tears. I think, obviously, there's something about a son that wants to perform for a father. And in that moment, he felt that gap, but wanted to do that for his dad. I have memories of, you know, being in Scotland and golfing, I have memories of going helicopter ski or helicopter fishing, rather, in British Columbia. And I don't know if it was the lures. At the end of the week, we really didn't uh, catch any helicopters. <laughs> but we caught a great amount of salmon, which was an upside uh, to helicopter fishing. And um, yet, with all these grand things, what I realized were most impactful and most important for me are the day-to-day things. You know, it's not the big, huge events. It's life together. And for my dad and me, that could mean anything. It could mean raking leaves in the fall in a yard that was more dirt than grass. It could mean going to the batting cages. It could mean coming home from the batting cages and deciding to wash the car. And the two of us saw it as an ultra-competition to see if we could wash the entire car and rinse the soap on two quarters or less. The time was quick, but we were good at this. And in those drives together, we often would listen to WLW and the Big Red Machine, uh, Cincinnati Reds, our favorite team together. In fact, we did it in the Little Red Machine. We had a rusted red Volkswagen Beetle. And we would drive around in that. When I was 12 years old, my dad got his first new car ever. And it was a cool new car. It was an Oldsmobile diesel station wagon. Diesel's going to be all the rage. I'm sure real soon everyone will drive them. 
But back then we knew we were on the cutting edge of something awesome. And it even had velour seats. This was the first time that we ever got into a car in the summer without the hot vinyl seats. And it had a cassette deck. And back then, I can't believe I'm saying this now, but I used to love when Barry Manilow was in the cassette deck. (laughs) The reason wasn't so much that I thought he was a fantastic crooner. The reason was, if he wasn't in the cassette deck, my dad always wanted to put in vocabulary tapes. He thought it was important for me to have ownership of words like abject and martinet so that I could use them today, first time. (laughs) And somehow, I found myself singing along with Barry, you know. If he came out, I'd just think, oh, Mandy, how I miss you and cry for you and long for you, baby. There's something about a time with a father that has an impact. Something about a time with a father that plants seeds that in fact could turn and grow into your own children. Just the other day I was coming home from a soccer game with my son. And as we got in the car, I scruffed his head. And I have a sports car, which to Chris just means I always got sports radio on. It's actually not a sports car at all, but I feel cooler by it. So I scruffed his head. We have sports radio on, and he proceeds to tell me everything about the game. Who made what passes, what fouls were incorrectly called, what great shots he had made, what, you know, great moments there were. And I thought in that moment, it was a bit of a cats in the cradle moment. Do you remember that song? In that moment, there's this part of me that could picture me looking to my dad and saying, I'm going to be like you. Or if my dad were to see the moment, he could sing along and say, my boy is just like me. Because the same thing happened for me when I was Chris's age. I'd get in, I'd get scruffed, and I'd start going off telling him all about the game over the sound of sports radio. In fact, it got so awful, I suppose, that my dad had nicknamed me Motormouth because he said I could just talk and drone on the entire ride home. I hope that when you go home today, you won't say, we heard from Motormouth this morning. (laughs) I hope what I have to say is meaningful. Ultimately, it's about this. When a child spends time with a father, meaningful time, They take on the likeness of that father when it's a good father. And that likeness can be passed on to children. And who knows? The great thing about fathers, it's this this seed that just could pass on and on. And we have an opportunity at any time to interrupt whatever seeds have been planted and start planting good seeds and leaving a good legacy. But I know that Father's Day isn't easy for everyone. I know that for some of you here, you may have lost your father. And this is a hard day to celebrate. I know that for some of you here, your father may have left your family. He may have been absent or abusive. Some of you may have had a hard time being fathers and raising kids. 
So I don't want to talk so much about our human fatherhood. I don't want to talk just to the men today. I want this message to hit for all of us by talking about the fact that for anyone, no matter what father you had, you have a perfect father in heaven. A father who longs to redeem you, to know you, to be with you, to live with you, to experience life with you, to scruff your head and say, well done. And it's in that father that I want us to think about the ultimate father and spending time with him that we might leave the ultimate legacy for our own children, our own neighbors, our own co-workers, whoever it might be with whom we have influence in our lives. And to do that, I want to talk from 2 Timothy today. I'm going to look at 2 Timothy verses 1 through 6. And I encourage you, go ahead and open the Bibles that are in front of you, or if you brought a Bible. If you don't know where to find it, it's around page 1178, New Testament, towards the back. And you can leave it open. I'll read it once, but then we're going to go back through. There are six verses, and as David hinted, I want you to think about these six verses as one, two, and three. So that this lesson is, in a sense, as easy as one, two, three. There is one message. It comes in verse two. There are two encouragements that come in verses one and three. And there are three examples that come in verses four, five, and six. And so that's how we're going to go through it. You can even picture a pyramid if you want. One message, two encouragements, three examples. And as I read this, it's easy in a church to lose sight of what this is. This letter is a handwritten letter from a guy who's using every ounce of strength he has. His eyes are bad, his hands are shaky. He writes in big letters. He writes from a cold, dark prison. He's not typing, he doesn't have a word processor, he can't proof his work. He's writing from his heart to a son. He calls Timothy, this is Paul who's writing, he calls Timothy his son in the faith. And he loves him like a son. In fact, for Paul, he's in the very last moments of his life. For 20, 25 years, he's been sharing about Jesus Christ with people from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, moving through Macedonia into Europe. He's been bold about this, and he's found his way into Rome under Nero's nose, but he's in prison. And Nero, the current emperor, this is around 67 AD, not a big fan of Christians. In fact, you may recall Mike had shared some things about Nero's fiery personality. I say fiery because at one point Nero burnt down a big part of Rome in order that he could build his own place, his own palace. And then he blamed it on the Christians in order to increase animosity towards Christians. I say fiery personality because two historians, Tacitus and Suetonius, talked about how Nero would like to burn Christians at the stake because he liked the glow at night. Fiery personality, fiery hard times, a man in prison has one opportunity to write 
what might be a last letter, his own writing, taking lots of time, and he wants to write to Timothy, his son. He wants to write this desperate plea to say, Timothy, I have planted a seed in you, and now it's time for you to plant this seed. I'll tell you a little hint at where we're going. You are the product of that chain continuing. We all are here. So this is what this tender father says to, not his biological son, but his adopted son in the faith. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the key verse is this one here. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he doesn't receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crop. Six verses, one, two, three. One message. This is the message. I'm going to skip to verse two, but then we'll go on to the others. Read it again. The things you have heard from me, the things that Paul has been teaching and talking about, going from city to city to pass on to others, the things you have heard from me say in the presence of many witnesses, well, you, Timothy, entrust these to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Do you see his heart? You've heard it from me. I want you to entrust it to others, but not just any others. Others who will then in turn turn and entrust it to others beyond him. Where did he get this model, do you think? You know, of course, this is Jesus' model. Jesus had three years of earthly ministry, of a broader earthly ministry. He, of course, had impact, I'm sure, on his teenage buddies and such. But three years in an earthly ministry. To me, if God has sent me to go save the world, I would think you'd want to broadcast as much as possible, quickly adapt the internet. I mean, he could have beaten Al Gore to it. He could have created a broadcast network, a radio system. Who knows what miracle he could have done to get his word out to everyone. Jesus doesn't race against the clock. He doesn't give us the sense that he's racing from town to town. He builds deeply into three people. Peter, James, and John. He builds a little more deeply into nine others, the rest of the disciples. He does assorted miracles and teachings along the way. We know he dies, is resurrected, leaves the tomb. We know that in his resurrection, he appears to more than 500. But at the end of his life, it's a little hard to know that he did a great job. In fact, those who he had entrusted this message with seemed to be scattering themselves. But he didn't have a plan B. His plan 
was to build so deeply into these people, spend so much time with these people, to plant seeds in these people, that the imprint of who he is and his character would get passed on. This is where Paul learned it. Go deeply with some. And Paul's way of doing things was to go into a city after city and he'd build deeply into some and he'd teach them, you need to know how. I'm just realizing, I apologize. It's probably been pretty quiet for a while because it, okay. So he'd build deeply into some in order that they could then take over the church and the respective cities that he visits. But he doesn't leave them there. He would stop back by and visit and see how things are doing. He would course correct along the way. He'd write letters back and say, how's it going? What's going on? But building deeply, checking in, connecting, this was his approach. And this is the approach that reaches us today. What you have heard from me and trust to reliable people and then pass it on. Reliable people who will teach others. I want you to know you're in a chain, but you're not the end of the chain. And I want you to know that God's heart for you is not simply that you would learn these things, but that you would live these things. And in living them, you'd have an impact, that you'd plant seeds, that you'd pass them on, that you would be in connection with God in a way that you know Him, but then you plant something like him in other people, in your kids, in your neighbors, in your friends, etc. That is the one message of this passage that we've selected today. But there are two encouragements. Let me read you the first. It's from verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, be strong. Now, for a lot of us, if we hear be strong, we equate that to something like try harder, work faster, do more. And I dare say almost all of us have challenges that require us to be strong. In fact, as Paul is writing, he's saying be strong in the full awareness that there are some who are not being strong he, reads, or he writes this just a few lines ahead. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now, they may have deserted because they're embarrassed about their own names, but I sense they deserted because following Jesus took incredible strength. Following Paul took incredible strength. And as Nero and Claudius before him are persecuting the Christians, they're not sure they have the strength. But my encouragement isn't to focus on be strong. It's this next expression, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And I tell you, friends, that is the key. It's not try harder. It's not be stronger. It's not redouble your efforts. He knows that they are working at their strongest. He's saying be strong in the grace. Do you remember Paul's experience? At one point he had a thorn in the flesh, maybe a a pain in his back. 
He pleads with Jesus, take this away. And what's Jesus say in response? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. If you feel weak today, if you feel that life is extra challenging, is pushing you, is a place where you're already tapped out, and when you come to church, the last thing you want is someone to say, try harder, be strong, do more. You should read this. You should do that. You should join this. Let me tell you, Paul wouldn't tell you try harder. He'd say, His grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in your weakness. Rejoice then in your weakness. Celebrate your weakness. Recognize your weakness. You could even take a quiet moment today or this week and just say, God, I feel weak. I'm struggling with this. I want to be the best father I can or the best employee, but I just don't know that I have it. And in that weakness, when you say, God, show me where I'm weak, and then would you be the strength in me? He's faithful to that. The very nature of God's work in your life isn't to say, I chose you because you're great, and I hope you can do great things. It's, I chose you because you're a sinner and broken, and you need me to choose you. While we were yet sinners, he sent Christ who died for us that we could know him, but in knowing him we could find his grace. We could recognize our shortcomings. We could recognize our gaps. And we could say, God, help me with the rest. I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. I do love you, but I need your grace to help me through. Be strong in grace. When you hear verses like, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. God wants to give you that rest. God says in Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. He says in Isaiah 43, Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. These are messages of saying, I have grace that is sufficient for you. Please come. Come to me. Confess your weakness. Say, God, I need you. And he will help you be strong. Two encouragements. Be strong, but also endure. Paul knows that his people need to endure. He knows these are not easy times. And he says to Timothy this, verse 3, Endure hardship with us. Like a good soldier, you're not alone. Endure with us and endure this hardship. Earlier, he says uh, to Timothy these things. It's not earlier. I apologize. It's uh, Timothy 3.10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, persecutions, sufferings, the things that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra the persecutions I endured. He says, endure with us. You're not alone. And he's pointing to his own example. He's saying, Timothy, you know me. And because you know me, you know what it is to endure. You know the way I endure. In fact, the way that Paul and Timothy met was when Paul came to Lystra, Timothy's hometown. And in that town, Paul was preaching about Jesus. And in doing so, he ruffled some feathers people who weren't ready to change their lives, and they stoned him and dragged him out of town for dead. 
Paul comes too. Some friends are finding him. And man, Paul, that was awful. We should get out of here, don't you think? And you know what Paul does? He gets up and he goes back. He endures. He doesn't run away from things. And he says to Timothy, you can also endure. You know you saw me in Lystra twice. You know the kind of person I am. You know about my shipwrecks, my beatings, my floggings, my stonings, my whippings. You know about my cold, my imprisonments, my days without food. I endure. And why does he endure? If the core of strength is grace, the core of endurance is faith. Faith that this isn't the time that God makes all things right. Faith that God has a promise that he wants to share with us that is worth it. That the things we're doing now are not worth comparing. In fact, Paul says this in Romans 8. Your present sufferings are not worth comparing to the future glory that will be revealed in you. What you're going through is tough. No one doubts that. But what you're going through is worth it because at the end of the day, you get eternity with a Father who loves you and who redeemed you. Endure with me. You're not alone. Do it by faith. Remember the future. Remember what's ahead for you. One message, two encouragements. Three examples. The first example here found in verse 4. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Real quickly, can you imagine a soldier maybe in Afghanistan today walking down the streets of Afghanistan, seeing an ice cream shop? Say, hey, you want to stop for an ice cream cone? You know, I'm tired. This has been a long journey. Let's just have some ice cream, maybe a cup of coffee. We can tell some stories. Do soldiers do that? They don't, right? Soldiers obey their mission. They're on a mission. They have a purpose. They don't get entangled or distracted or do things that are frivolous. They don't say, hey, I know we're supposed to be on mission all night tonight. But do you mind if I take a break in the morning? Because back in America, I could be watching American Idol, and I want to see if Philip Phillips wins. Does that happen? Throughout Scripture, Paul references this image, the image of the soldier who is on mission with purpose, whose job it is to be obedient to their commanding officer. Christ commands, we go. But we don't go alone, and we don't go without strength. Christ offers it. Being quick, I'll just say he goes next to athlete in verse 5. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he doesn't receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The rules he's referencing aren't rules like whether you're allowed to tug on a player's shorts, elbow them, or flop on the court during the NBA Finals. And they're not rules about golf and whether you can move the ball a little bit. He's talking about the rules of the Olympic and the Isthmian Games, two famous games that were played throughout the ancient land. And the athletes who competed in those, if designated as an athlete, would separate themselves and spend two years in strict training to be ready for these games. No athlete goes into a game without obeying the rules of preparation and training. I've run four marathons. I don't do those by going today and saying, I think I'll do this 
next week. You do it by strict training. You follow a process, a regimen. God invites us to enter into strict training. God invites us to put a daily discipline in front of us where in that time, spending it with the Father, we take on the likeness of the Father so that when we compete, we're ready. The athlete is disciplined and trains. Tom Landry put it famously, the coach's job is to get people to do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they want to achieve. If we have a common goal of Christ-likeness, then sometimes it means getting up earlier to get into God's Word. Sometimes it means approaching it in a way that helps us to understand what Christ-likeness looks like. The soldier, the athlete, and he finishes in verse 6 with the farmer. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive the share of the crops. It's a perfect finishing verse, isn't it? Have you ever seen any young kid that someone says, that guy is built to be a farmer? You might see that in an NBA player who's seven foot tall. You might see it in a, you know, some sort of a large player who could be a football player. You might see it in a swimmer. They talk about Michael Phelps and his double-jointedness and his abnormally long feet and arms, how he's naturally a swimmer. But no one's naturally a farmer, right? A farmer is a farmer by hard work. And a farmer is a farmer by faith. No farmer can make the crops grow. A farmer can till the soil. He can plant the seed. He can cultivate the soil. He can weed. He can water. But he can't make it grow. It's like what Paul says in Corinthians. He says, I plant Apollos waters, but only God can make it grow. The example that Paul is giving is that of the farmer saying, be hardworking, but have patience. It's not up to you. The results are not up to you. You plant the seeds. And I'll just encourage you with that thought. At the end of all this, you plant the seeds. It's up to you. You're in a chain that has continued from Timothy to today. You plant the seeds. You go from here and you become the sermon. Mike has often said, Sunday's not enough. It's not that he wants you here Monday through Saturday. It's that he wants you out. Living as Christians. Having an influence. Being salt and light. A city on the hill. Changing the world around you. I want to read this poem from Edgar Guest. It's called Sermons We See. I'm just going to read the first two stanzas. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. The eye is a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Find counsel is confusing, but examples always clear. And the best of all the preachers are the men who live their creeds. For to see good put in action is what everybody needs. I soon can learn to do it if you'll let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lecture you deliver may be very wise and true, but I'd rather get my lessons by observing what you do. For I might misunderstand you in the high advice you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. Though an able speaker charms me with his eloquence, I'd say I'd rather see a sermon than to hear one any day. I had opportunity in my life to read about my dad 
in the Wall Street Journal, in the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune. I've seen him pictured on the cover of Forbes. I will tell you this. Reading about him is not the same as living with him. Reading about him is not the same as spending time with him. Simply coming here and hearing about him is not the same as gaining your first-hand experience. You can spend time with the ultimate father. You can leave an ultimate legacy. It's up to us. But I want to share with you one last illustration that points to the fact that it's also up to God. Last Saturday, I did a remembrance service at the Botanic Garden, and while there, someone shared with me a unique detail about a part of God's creation. There are trees called lodgepole pines, bishop pines, knobcone pines, sergeant cypress, and a variety of others. They have standard cones, pine cones that drop seeds that grow and grow in the forest. There is another a serotonous cone, has a resin. It seals it in this sap. The seed pod remains sealed for up to 40 years with the seeds inside, never dropping until they meet a temperature somewhere between 113 and 140 Fahrenheit. You know what creates that temperature for a cone that high up? A forest fire. For years, humanly, we fought forest fires thinking it's ruining our forest and we need to protect the trees. You know who was already protecting the trees? God was. God built these trees with these cones that the sap would melt in a forest fire and they become the first seeds that fall to the ground. And God had the foresight to say, let's make them black seeds. They're going to hit a charred ground where the weeds and other trees have been burnt away, and these charred seeds won't be found by forest creatures. They won't be found by birds. They will plant their way, and they'll become the new forest. God cares about his seeds. We also are his seeds. He cared about us enough that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He cares about enough That he so loved the world that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. He cares about us enough even more than the pine cone, my friends. He cares about you. He knits you together. Of course he cares about you. There is no plan B. We are part of plan A. We're in a chain We are to entrust it to others. We are to be strong. We are to endure. We're to be like the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. But you are not alone. You are with God whose grace is sufficient. And I just encourage you today, spend that time with God. Bear His likeness that you might pass it on to others. But then trust that God will protect the delivery of that for the next generation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray on this Father's Day that we would all come to know You, that we would love You, that we would appreciate just how much You love us. And being that You are the perfect Father, I pray that we would know You, that we would take the time to know You. And if we don't, that we would find someone who knows You to be our Paul, to come alongside and live life with us and show us that they might be a sermon we see that we could know You and know what it is to live like You, that we might start to live like You and show others 
Father, I pray that on this day we might know you as the ultimate father, we might leave the ultimate legacy, and that we might have a happy Father's Day. Amen.